0: So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the ninth chapter of Luke. Now we're going to read verses 28 through 36, but this morning our focus is going to be on verses 28 and 29 and then jumping down to verse 35. But this all goes together, so we're going to read it uh, completely through both this week and next as we uh, split this passage into two separate um, Um, messages reading from the 28th verse now about eight days after these sayings he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray and as he was praying the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzlingly white and behold two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah And may the Lord truly bless to our understanding this morning, give, give a, a imagination to our mind's eye as we try to visualize this amazing scene that Dr. Luke gives us in this part of his gospel. Let's pray and ask the Lord for that illumination. Father, you know that I know, and I know that you know that I'm not up to this. Um, I, I don't have the words. Uh, I, I can't describe what is before us. I, I can't emphasize the importance to redemptive history. I'll fall way short. And so I ask your words to take over. We will look at your word in your word and let that do the talking for the most part, but... In the words that I say, I pray that you will give me those words exactly the way that you want this related so that we can see the image that you have placed before us and that we will take away with us a clear image of who we worship and who our Lord is and and, and what he's like right now and how he will be when he returns. We'll give you the glory for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I have a daunting, if not impossible, task this morning. Um, How does one describe the indescribable? How does one put into words that for which there are no words? How are we possibly going to look at this and see it in our mind's eye? I've, for the last couple of weeks, I've known that when I got here to this message that words would fail me, uh, that, that there's just no way that I can, uh, I, I can come up with the words and whatever words I do come up with are simply going to get in the way. And that's the reason that we're going to turn to God's word for the most part. And then later on, actually, we're going to hear from God himself and let his words direct us. But before we get there, and it's seemingly in contradiction to what I just said, there are a couple of words that I'm going to be using throughout this morning's message that are not in the Word of God. And these are words that I think will help us form an image in our minds, if I can adequately describe them. And and, and, and even though they're not in the Word of God, I think they're very descriptive of what is in the Word of God. And these are the words refulgent and Shekinah. So I thought that at the beginning it might be good to define those words so that we know exactly what I'm talking about. The word refulgent or refulgence is not a word that we use all that much. Now this is the way the dictionary um, defines that. It is the quality or state of radiance, brilliance, Or resplendence and and it is to cast a bright light, a stunning light that is radiant and resplendent in nature. So when we talk about refulgence and the the light that is refulgent, we're not talking about a reflective light. We're not talking about a light that comes from uh, some other source and lights the object that you're talking about. And of course, we're going to be talking about Jesus. But rather a light that is from within, a light that shines from within, that a light that actually emanates from the source itself. And it also does not speak of a pale or a flat or a, 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 a cold light. It speaks of a warm, of a beautiful, of, of a powerful, of an energetic, even pulsating kind of light that fills the, the room with its power and with its energy. And, and so that's a good word that we're gonna use to try to describe what the disciples are seeing um, when Jesus is transfigured. The other word is Shekinah. And like uh, Refulgent, it it is not in Scripture, although many people think that it is. It's a Hebrew word that was used quite often by the rabbis in the the, the Talmud when they, they talked about the glory of God. Now, literally, Shekinah simply means that which dwells. But in the context that we are using it in, we are talking about the glory of God when it is seen, when it is present, when it is visible, when it shines with that refulgence that we're talking about. And of course, that's the glory that we're going to be seeing when we look at Jesus. Now, even though that word is not actually used in scripture, it it talks about that glory all along. In fact, what Brother Will read us earlier in the moment in the word, let me reword it because this is exactly what Isaiah is talking about when he says, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings To the brightness of your rising. That's kind of the image that we're gonna have of this refulgent Shekinah the glory that is Christ that is going to be revealed to us in this passage that we commonly call the transfiguration. We'll get to that in a moment. Now, as I kind of made it clear at the beginning, if you're looking at your bulletin and you see this huge long outline and you say, oh my goodness, we're going to be here all day. Well, I I continually bite off more than I can chew and that was the case with this. It would, I couldn't do it justice in two hours, much, much Less, uh, less than an hour, which I try to keep this this uh, in. So I divided it very, very late after the, um, uh, the outline went to print. So what we're going to do this morning, even though there's richness to be found in those heavenly visitors, actually the whole passage goes together, should be handled at one time, but we just simply don't have the time. So we're going to focus only on the actual transfiguration, transformation of Jesus this morning. Next week, we will come back and we will take a look at the heavenly visitors and Peter's sort of um, silly um, statement to build those three um, Um, tabernacles you know brother will was praying for me but just before the services the elders do and he was we were were talking about peter and you know i really am happy that it's jesus at the gate of heaven and not peter because we talk so bad about him when when we're going through the gospels that he might not let me in uh if if i showed up but uh now we know that that's not going to be the case well anyway let me bring it to um, the focus. And again, we're only, there's several different themes converging here. It's a very important passage, one of the most important passages in all of redemptive history. Um, so there's quite a few themes that are converging. Most of them we'll actually get to next week. The only theme that I want to focus on is the one that Luke has been building. We've been in sort of this crescendo or making our way up a mountain, if you will, where Luke has been truly introducing us to to the divinity and the holiness of Christ. And he's done this by, first of all, talking about the many miracles that Jesus worked, miracles that only God can do, like controlling the wind and the waves, or to raise people from the dead, or to forgive sins, or to feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. This has established the, the divinity of Christ and the power that he that he wheels but but then more recently you remember when Herod Antipas started wondering well who is this Jesus who do people say that they are and then Jesus asked his disciples well who are people saying that I am but then the really poignant question which is who do you say that I am and of course Peter articulating the thought of all the apostles responded and said you are the Christ of God. Now, that is all making our way up this mountain to the apex of that mountain, which is where we're going to be today. Now, there's other themes. Uh, Jesus has introduced his passion and the fact that the amazing story that this God that it is in human flesh is going to go to Jerusalem and must be persecuted and suffer and be rejected and be killed by the hands of mortal men. I mean, it's just hard for us to process. And then there's the other theme of the disciples and how this is going to impact them. But we'll, we'll, we'll sort of get to that next week. I, I, I really want to keep our focus this morning On this refulgent Shekinah, the glory of Christ and how that is being revealed and what that means to us. So with that said, let's turn our attention to the text again. We're going to be looking at 28 and 29 and then we're going to jump down to 35 as we try to visualize this truly amazing scene that is before us. So, look there at the 28th verse. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, as Luke loves to do, and he's done it almost every time there's sort of a new scene, he likes to set the scene for us, and that is exactly what he is doing here. Now, if I was so inclined, I could spend probably the next 45 minutes to an hour simply talking about this verse and all the controversy that is out there over it. Because you know, we have to reconcile Luke and Matthew and Mark together, and when they don't line up exactly, well, it requires some explanation. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm at least not here. We'll talk about that in the after church. And for those of you who don't know the after church, I lament sometimes that more people don't uh, don't come and enjoy that because the things that I can't get to in the sermon and questions that you may have, well, that's the place that we go into them in more detail. But let me just at least say these things about that. The first question that we have here is the 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 timing. Luke says eight days, Mark and Matthew say six. I'm not going to go into explaining at this point why that isn't a discrepancy. I'm just going to say it's not a discrepancy. And there's a very clear explanation of why Luke and, and Matthew and Mark would differ on those two things. Well, that sets the time about eight days, about six days a week after the sayings. Now, the sayings that he's talking about are going all the way back to when he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am, and Peter responds. Now Mark tells us that they're way up in Caesarea Philippi when that occurs up in the far northeast regions of uh, of of what would be Israel um at, at least in in conception. Um well the that, that that that's that's what's happening up there so it's from those sayings through the sayings of where Jesus says yes you're right I am the the Christ of God but don't tell anyone because I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed at the hands of mortal men and 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 then he turns right around and tells his disciples that if you're going to follow after me, you're going to suffer just like I. You've got to be ready to pick up your crosses and follow after me to lose your identity and find your identity in me. And so those are the sayings that have occurred. And as I said, probably up in Caesarea Philippi, uh, Luke doesn't give us any information about that. So we're not going to go any farther into that either. Notice that he takes Peter and John and James up with him. Well, we're not going to go into why there's three of them and they keep getting added over and over again. Except for the comparison that I'm about to make. And, and that is that the same three men were the ones that Jesus took with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when we we have a, a, almost a parallel passage. In fact, let me go ahead and say this because we're going to talk about the mountain in a moment. Luke has been taking us up this sort of figurative mountain. Now we're at the apex when we see the culmination of Jesus. But you know how it is when you go up on top of a mountain, you can see things that you can't see when you're in the valley. And so therefore, now that we're up on the top of this mountain, we're going to be able to look at another peak, which is really the whole focus, because on that peak is the cross, okay? From this mountain, we're going to be able to see the cross, and that is very exactly what we're... Uh, we're, we're going to bring out as we go through this. Well, the last thing that, uh, well, not the last thing, but the second to last thing that we see here is that he went up on the mountain. And you probably think that I'm not going to cover anything this morning, but like I keep saying I'm not going to cover that this morning. We're going to talk about it in the after church. There's a big controversy about which mountain it is. And the only thing I'm going to tell you is that probably it's not Mount Tabor, which is the traditional view. It's only about 1,900 feet tall. It's in Nazareth. There's a fort on top of it. More than likely not the mountain where Jesus goes to be alone with his disciples. So we'll talk about that in the after church. But what I want you to know is is that mountain would have at least been 4,000 feet tall, at least. And it was in the fall, and it most likely is at night. So it's going to be nice and cool up there. And that's going to play when we start talking about why Jesus went to the mountain in the first place. And that's the very last phrase on this 28th verse. He went up on top of that mountain to pray. And he took his disciples with him to pray. And look down in the first of the 29th verse. And as he was praying... Now, we know that Jesus loved to spend time in prayer with his father. It was a vital part of his life and his ministry. But you may also notice that as far as the way the Gospels capture those prayers, it quite often is at a time where there's a turn, where, where there's something of deep importance that Jesus is either struggling with or a decision that he's going to, to make. When he, when he chose the 12, he went up on a mountain to pray. And now he's up on a mountain. And, and, and I think that, that there's a reason that we can find for that. Spurgeon makes a very big deal about this. Spurgeon really believed in the importance, not just of individual prayer, but of corporate prayer within the church and how powerful that was and how things happened when God's people prayed. So he really draws a connection between this transfiguration and the fact that Jesus was praying at the time that this occurred. But we don't know what he's praying about for sure. We don't know how long he's praying. But I can make a very educated guess from what we have here in the book of of Luke, especially in the ninth chapter. I've told you several times that when we get down to the 51st verse of this chapter, we're going to see a threshold. We're going to see a turning point. This is what Luke is going to tell us then. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. So when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, the Galilean ministry is behind him. And there's a lot of teaching and parables that are going to happen in the process, but he turns his face towards the cross. He turns his face towards his sacrificial atonement that is going to occur on that cross. And so out of that, a tremendous amount of angst would come uh, as part of it because of the tremendous sacrifice, the spiritual sacrifice mainly, that he is going to make shouldering the sins and paying for them facing the wrath of God as he did. So he would quite often spend time in prayer. So we can assume that that at least is a very good part of what his prayer is. Later on, actually we're not going to really focus on that, but later on when we read that Moses and Elijah come and speak to him, we're going to hear that this is the topic of their conversation. In fact, he says that they came and they talked about his departure that he was about to accomplish. We'll get to that next week. Interesting word. The word is exodus that is used there in the Greek. We'll we'll draw the association later on between Moses and what's going on. But but nonetheless, we, 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 we see that more than likely Jesus is praying fervently about the coming of the cross. Now, There's an obvious connection. And like I told you, when we get to the top of the mountain, we can see this peak in the distance. We're not there yet, but it becomes very, very evident for us. And of course, the cross is right on top of that. Now, there are such similarities that I want you to see here between what is happening in this story and Gethsemane, which is just before his crucifixion. Number one, they're both taking place on a mountain. Now, granted, the Mount of Olives is more of a hill, and they're not even on the top of that, but nonetheless, it's on a mountain, and this, of course, is on the mountain, as Luke tells us. Secondly, Jesus is fervently praying to his Father, and more than likely, about his coming crucifixion. Thirdly, he takes... Peter, James, and John, those three with him, uh, a little farther in in Gethsemane, but they're apparently the only ones up on the mountain here. He takes them with them in order for uh, them to be near when he prays. In both of these situations, they're fighting um, of sleep. Here, here we we read that sleep was heavy upon them, and, and that gives me the impression, Implication that they're fighting that sleep but the sleep is overwhelming them and taking over them even as it did in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here's here's the vital point. That in both of these parallels we're going to see the glory of God unveiled. We're going to see a a truly glorifying event that comes right after these times in prayers. Now people have trouble sometime seeing the cross and the suffering that goes on there as a time of glory. But that's exactly what it is. Jesus in the 12th chapter of John says, Father, glorify your name and, and, and he, that's just right after he says I'm, you know, should I ask the Father to save me from this hour because it's from this hour that I came and then of course there's a voice from heaven that says I have glorified it and will glorify it again and when we study that in John we recognize that this is the great glory of God the Father that is being accomplished on the cross the culmination of all redemptive history the culmination of all the covenants it has been planned before the foundations of the world so it is a time when God is glorified and Christ is glorified and the bride of Christ is established to be glorified as well and to bring glory to them. So we we, we have this connection between these two that I want you to make sure you see that the the glory that we're about to see is, is the glory of the revealed nature of Christ. Almost as if God is just pulling back the veil of his humanity so that you can see his glory, his refulgent Shekinah. With that said, let's go ahead and look at this event in and of itself. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzlingly white. Two descriptions he gives us of the change that takes place in Jesus. Now, the reason we call this the transfiguration is actually goes back to the King James Version and the way that that translated the Latin Vulgate, which was used not only for that, but it was the, 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 the accepted scripture of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and and it was flawed, and it's not my opinion. Everyone knows that it was flawed. So there, there are some misinterpretations because the underlying Greek word here is not normally translated as transfiguration. It's the word metamorpho, and I'm probably mispronouncing that horribly. When I went to seminary, I learned Greek to learn it and not to pronounce it. But you can obviously, at least from that, pick up that that's the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. Now, Luke doesn't actually use the word, but both Matthew and Mark use the word, and it normally is translated transformation. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Jesus, a transformation occur. A metamorphosis is, of course, and the one that everyone is familiar with, is when a worm or a caterpillar weaves a cocoon around itself and then emerges as a beautiful butterfly. There's a complete change in the physical appearance of Of that caterpillar turned into a butterfly. So that's what we need to keep in mind when we try to visualize what's going on with Jesus. It is a complete change. In fact, the word that Luke uses, as I said, he doesn't use the word metamorphosis or metamorpho. He uses another word. Notice how he puts it. Very interesting. He says that the appearance of his face was altered. Well, the word underneath that word altered is simply the word other or another. So basically what that is saying is that and the appearance of his faith became other, <laughs> other than what it was. So it speaks of a dramatic change. In fact, in the Greek dictionary, if we go and look at that, it, it, it's, it means to be dissimilar in kind or class from all other entities, in other words, to be absolutely unique. So to put it this way, when the apostles saw Jesus transfigured before them, transformed, altered, it was something that they had never seen before, that, that, that there are no words to describe. There, there, there's no ability to talk about the emotion that might occur or the beauty that is there when the refulgent of Shekinah of God is seen in that way. Now, now, Mark doesn't actually address the face. He, he, he talks about the clothes only. But Matthew at least tells us that his face was shining like the sun, okay, emanating from him in that sense. So we need to try to form an image, and I know this is hard. It's hard for us to do. It's hard for us to describe something in, even in our mind's eye for which there are no words, for which there is no precedent. There, 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 There's nothing to compare it to that is anywhere close to what we are actually seeing here. But we need to at least try to, to see if we can see Jesus in this light. You know, brothers and sisters, way too often, I think, now please hear me out before you make an opinion here, don't get me wrong. But way too often, I think that the way we see Jesus is in his humanity. It is Jesus meek and mild, and it is Jesus hanging on the cross. Now, I'm not saying those are bad images. Those are real images, but those aren't the only images that we should see. When Kay and I were in Italy, and we went from... Uh, from cathedral to cathedral, we saw many, many images of Christ, but they were pretty much of two kinds. Either he was a baby in the arms of Mary, and Mary was the one that was the focus, or he was on the cross, or or he was dead, or or hanging on the cross, or, or in something to do with that. I can't even remember, I'm sure there are some, but I can't even remember a, a picture or a painting or an image of Jesus that spoke entirely of his refulgent Shekinah glory. I mean, it was always just sort of Jesus in, in, this, in this fallen, not fallen, but this humble sense. And and I think what we need to create, what we need to imagine, is the, the Jesus that we're seeing here. Because that's what God is doing. He's peeling back the humanity so that we see what is underneath. Now, I don't have as much trouble with this as some people do. Because I, I really resist the... The inclination to give Jesus any facial features. Uh, I I see bodies, I I see figures, and and I say an awful lot about him. But when it comes to his face, I I, I don't see any features because I know that whatever features I give him are going to be wrong. I mean, not just a little wrong, but a lot wrong. So I would rather not even see his facial features. But here in this sense, in this scene, the facial features wouldn't be there because the only thing you're going to see is the refulgent Shekinah. The only thing you're going to see is this glory that is coming out of his face and shining in the world that is around them. And, and, and what I'm drawn to, and this is one of the things that I think we should remind ourselves when we actually get to this point. We should remember who Jesus is and where he came from. That when he left heaven and he came to earth, one of the most difficult doctrines that people struggle with is a doctrine known as the humiliation. The actual fact of how on earth does God become a human being and, and walk around us. Well, Paul tells us in the second chapter of Philippians, when he says this, Jesus, talking about him, though he was in the form of God, did not count a quality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to and not let go of. But he emptied himself and we'll get the wrong impression. That does not mean that Jesus emptied himself of his godness. What it means is is subtraction by addition. By adding on the attributes of a human being, by taking on the attributes of a man, he in a sense emptied himself um, of that a absolutely pure deity. It's not that the deity went away and of course there we get into the very complex relationship of one person with two natures, right? Both of them 100%, holy God and holy man at the same time. But that's what we're seeing there. Paul goes on and says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Now, brothers and sisters, if all we see in our mind's eye about Jesus is Jesus meek and mild, then the fact that that God in human flesh who went to the cross and suffered with your sins upon his shoulder, facing God's wrath for those sins, it gets diminished when we consider who he is and, and, and the glory that is his, at the time of that sacrifice, it just boggles the imaginations. Our mind just shut down. We can't imagine that degree of compassion and grace and mercy and love and glory That is being expressed by Jesus when he goes to the cross. Because this is the way he looks. (laughs) This is the real Jesus, right? This is the Jesus in his second member of the Godhead form. And so we see that glory just emanating from him. Um, We'll return to that and kind of get a a, a deeper look at, at what that is. But let's go ahead and take a look at the rest of him. The clothes that uh, and what happened to those clothes. His clothing became dazzling white. I, I, I like the word that, excuse me, that Luke uses. A uh, dazzling. Uh, it's a word that means almost a stunning flash of indescribable, unapproachable light. Almost like uh, it's used to talk about a lightning strike. When it it, it hits something. Have you ever seen a picture of a a telephone pole or, 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 or a tree when lightning hits it? And 300 million volts of electricity lighted up its power, its energy, it's sudden, it's frightening, but it's stunning at the same time. It flashes with an unequaled power. Well, that's the way that Luke is describing what happens to the close of Jesus. Now, once again, we need to form an image in our minds here. Because the clothes are just plain old everyday clothes. The the clothes are are not refulgent in and of themselves. They're just plain old clothes. And one thing we need to remember that in those days, actually as well as today, the clothes that they wore were designed to to block out the sun. And they covered pretty much their whole body. The only thing that's there that's open are are their feet and their hands and their heads. And sometimes they would cover the heads with a turban. Now, a lot of people think, especially in South Florida, the more skin you show, the cooler you are. Actually, it's the reverse. The more skin you show, the more the sun heats that skin up, and pretty soon you become a powder keg, feeling like you're going to explode from the inside. Well, people who work in the sun all day know that they cover themselves up because even though they're wearing long sleeves, they're out of that sun. So that's what the clothing was like in those days. It was heavy. And it was specifically designed to block out light. And the fact that many people place this near the, the Feast of Booths, which is in the fall, the fact that there are at least 4,000 feet, maybe even more uh, in the air, and the fact that more than likely Luke is going to tell us they're there all night, the fact that it is the the nighttime tells us that Jesus would be wearing his full complement of clothes because it would be cold up there. But the glory, the refulgence, the shekinah glows right through them and his entire uh, figure lights up as if it had been struck with 300 million volts of power and electricity. It's an amazing picture for us to see of what Jesus looked like. And you can understand why I stammer for my words and why the disciples, they they can't figure out what to do. They're totally blown away by what they're seeing. There are absolutely no words to describe it. Now, let's see if we can sort out a little bit of significance here of what we are actually seeing. I don't know that this is true, but um, one thing I do know is that very, very few men in the history of the planet have ever seen the refulgent Shekinah of God. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about in visions like Isaiah or John. I'm talking about in person to actually have seen and be in the presence of the Shekinah of God. Well, five of them are on top of the mountain right now. <laughs> and John MacArthur says that's all, the only five in the history of the human race that have ever seen the Shekinah of God. I can't uh, verify that, but I know that it's a mighty short list. And five of the men who have been, ha- had that, that incredible privilege are there on the mountain. And two of them are, the, what they have seen is nowhere near the power that these three apostles are seeing in this particular verse. Uh, it, it, and, and probably before we get here in time, the one human being on earth who has been closer to the Shekinah of God than anyone else is more than likely Moses who is there. We'll talk an awful lot about Moses next week and, and, and how he fits into this. But you may remember that Moses on a regular basis would shine with the Shekinah of God. Of, of God, when he went up on Mount Sinai to re, re, receive the law, when he would go into the tent of meeting regularly, his face would be shining with that glory, that Shekinah, when he came out. And, and it made the people afraid, so he would cover it with a veil. But Paul tells us that it's not just that the people were afraid of the face that caused him to cover it with a veil. In um, 2 Corinthians, we read this. um, Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the reason that that veil is put over the face of Moses is because the glory of God is diminishing. It's fading and God did not want to see anyone to see his fading glory. But the point is this, that as long as Moses was in the presence of God, his face would shine with the glory of God. But as soon as he left the presence of God, it diminished and faded and his face would return to normal. That is not what is happening with Jesus right now. What is happening with Jesus is the reality of his God nature is shining through. And once again, it is as if God has said, let me peel back the veil. Let me remove the attributes of humanity for just a glimpse, just a moment. Because I want you to see the glory of the one you worship. The glory of the master you follow, the one you have given your life to. Yes, he's Jesus meek and mild. Yes, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yes, he's the one who went to the cross, but he's also God incarnate in the flesh. And we need to see him as such because that power is the power with which he guides and directs his church. So there's this amazing, beautiful refulgence in this glory. Jesus himself talks about this in his high priestly prayer. You may remember when he starts it out towards the beginning of it. He says to his father, and now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He talks about that Shekinah that was veiled, that was obscured when the word became flesh. And of course we know that's what John tells us in his prologue to his gospel. He he says very clearly, And the word, meaning Christ, meaning God, became flesh and he tabernacled and dwelt amongst us. We have seen his glory. The glories of the only son of the father. Full of grace and truth. What John is saying is. I was an eyewitness. I saw the glory of God. As it shone through on that night. On top of that mountain. Peter says the same thing in his second letter. He says for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. When we made known to you the power. And coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were I witnesses. We saw the refulgent Shekinah of God shining forth on that extraordinary night. The writer of Hebrews talks about this when he starts his book and says he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Two things he tells us in that famous verse. One, that the radiance is the radiance of God. And two, that Jesus is the one who is uh, uh, shining that radiance out. So the radiance that Jesus has is the very radiance of God. Paul says to the Colossians that in him the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember who it is that we worship, who it is that we follow. Because I, 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 I want to make this clear, and I'll make it clearer later on, that the cross is done. That, that's behind us. Jesus hanging on the cross, dying and being mocked, and, and, and being humbled and suffering and paying that horrible price, that's done, that's gone. The one that we worship now is this Jesus. The one who guides and leads his his kingdom is this Jesus. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he rules this world with power and a rod of iron. And when we worship and follow him, that's the Jesus right now that we praise and glorify. (laughs) Too often I think we look backwards and we don't look forwards. Well, as I said, I feel that I've probably done a pretty rotten job of trying to describe that which is indescribable. So I want to actually jump down to the 35th verse and I want to let God do the describing rather than me. Um, I, I, I want to hear what he has to say about what is going on here. And brothers and sisters, if there was ever a message that the church needs to hear. It is this one. It is the message that God shares when we get down to the 35th verse. Let me kind of explain what happens in the interim, and you kind of know this. Um, First of all, after this transformation by Jesus, then Moses and Elijah appear and they have this conversation and Peter sees it and he makes another great blunder. He, He wants to build three tabernacles for them. We'll talk about what was on Peter's mind or at least what we think was on Peter's mind at that time when we get to it next week. But as Peter is talking I love this. This is one of my favorite scenes in scripture. As Peter is talking a cloud comes and literally cuts him off, you know, Peter, shut up. I mean, I didn't mean to. God wouldn't say that. Peter, okay, look, you're you're on the wrong track. Don't follow that up. Let me tell you what's really happening. And and it was quite uh natural for God to to, to move around in a cloud, that that is very, very common in Scripture. You remember in the Exodus when God would go before the children of Israel. It was in a pillar of cloud when he brought manna to feed them. They saw the Shekinah of God. In the clouds, in the desert, when God came down upon Mount Sinai in power, that terrible dark cloud engulfed the top of that mountain so that the people couldn't even touch it. And when Jesus leaves this earth to go back to heaven, he will depart on the clouds of heaven And then going back to Daniel 7, we see where one like the Son of Man came on the clouds of heaven as he returns to the Ancient of Days to be coronated and crowned King of Kings. So it's very natural that God would would move around on a cloud. And and actually, this particular cloud has come to fetch Moses and Elijah because it's going to engulf them. But anyway, I really am sorry for saying that God told Peter to shut up. That just blurted out. I I didn't mean that. Uh, You know, I'm going to feel terrible about that. Uh, You know, that's one of the ones that I'll kind of edit out of the of the video once once we do the editing, but I, I'm really sorry for that. Um, but but he does cut him off. Uh, you know he does stop it because God wants to make his own statement. He, he wants us to know what's going on, and and that's when the voice comes out of the cloud and says, definitely for the benefit of the apostles. And so look at thirty five, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, "This is my son, my." chosen one, listen to him. Okay, so the first thing that we see is that once again, for the second time in the Gospels, God refers to Jesus as his son. Now, the first time was at The baptism of Christ. And of course we know and read that in Luke. It went like this. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Well here God makes... A point, I think, and, 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 and this is a revelation. It's the same thing, even though it doesn't tell us that this is God the Father speaking, we know that it is because He's referring to Jesus as His Son. And He says, this is my Son. Now, notice what's just happened. Notice what has just occurred. We have had this refulgent, refulgent Shekinah, this light that has bathed the world that has come flashing out of Jesus as if a 300 million volt lightning bolt hit him and now God is telling us that's my son that is not a light that was given to him or reflected from him that is a light that comes from within him that is my son and what I'm doing is pulling back the veil of his humanity so that you can see this is a complex being he is holy God and he is holy man he never stopped being God and so therefore it is God who is walking in your midst and we need to remember that brothers and sisters when we can we form our minds of who Jesus is I mean he is God in the flesh and we have seen his glory as John said as it is laid out for us here so the first thing that he makes absolutely clear is that this is his son and the light that is coming from him is the light of God Brothers and sisters, I, I just want to see if you can transport yourself for a moment. And, and again, I know that these are difficult things for, for us to comprehend. But if you can see this refulgent Shekinah that is coming from Jesus and how he is lit up, that, brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is the light that you will be bathed in for all eternity. You see, John, when he saw his apocalyptic vision, says this when he saw the city of Jerusalem. He says, The city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. (laughs) What God has done here, He's given us a glimpse of eternity. He's given us a glimpse of of the light that is going to bathe us. It, it, it's not going to, I don't know whether there's going to be a sun or moon and stars. I mean, but there's no need for them. Because the light that we're going to live in is the light of God and the light of Christ. You're not going to walk into a room and turn the electrical switch on and have the lights come on. You will be bathed in the most luscious, gr- beautiful, energetic, powerful, rich and fulfilling and healing light that exists in the universe and you'll live there for an eternity. Can you imagine the emotion? Can you imagine the glory? Can you imagine what it would be like to live bathed in the light that we just get a glimpse of? Now, in fact, that's a good definition, I think, of this transformation. It is an earthly glimpse of the heavenly Christ. Just a moment, we see, what he is, who he is, and what we have in store. So the first thing that he says is, this is my son. The second thing that he says, this is my chosen one. That's a phrase that is not used in that way in very many places in Scripture. Twice in the Old Testament that I could find, once about Moses, once about David, both of them chosen ones, but both of them pointing to Jesus. And then there's this one here where God, after he shows the glory of Christ, after he identifies him as his son, he says, this is my chosen one. Peter tells us that before the foundations of the world that the Holy Trinity within itself determined and decreed that this was God's plan. Peter says that he went to the cross with a definite plan and foreknowledge of God the Father. It wasn't random. It didn't happen just because the the, the men took him to the cross. This was the plan. Jesus as the sacrificial, uh, um, substitutional atonement. And we know that that was the only way that our sins will ever be forgiven. And so Jesus, the man who is standing there, who is transfigured, God says, this is the chosen one. This is the culmination of redemptive history. This is the culmination of all the covenants. It's all coming together right now, right here, right in front of you. What a glorious scene that actually is. Isn't it tragic that the only other place in the New Testament that we see this phrase, chosen one, is in the mouths of unbelievers? The mouth of scoffers, and it brings up another dimension of this. Later on in Luke, we will read, and the people stood by when Jesus is on the cross, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Two of the great Titles that identify Jesus for who he is, they used in a mocking and scoffing way. And this takes me back, brothers and sisters, to what we studied when Jesus says, whoever saves his life in this world will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, there are consequences for rejecting the one that God is revealing to us as the divine son of God. Well, then finally, um, God says, listen to him. Back when I used to program computers, we we had a phrase that we actually used quite a bit. I don't hear it, um, not that I don't continue to program them on occasion, but I don't hear it that much anymore. And the phrase that we would use was the phrase, oh, that's a no-brainer. And, and and when we talked about a no-brainer, it, we talked about something that was so obvious and so simple and so right in front of your face that it really didn't require a lot of brain waves in order to figure out the right answer to it. Well, this is a no-brainer, okay? If you put this into its context, Right? Jesus takes his disciples up to a mountain, is transfigured before them. His divinity is shown, the Shekinah glory of his uh, his true identity as the Son of God shines forth and God says, you should listen to him because this is my son and because the words that he shares with you are my words. He's the apostle from heaven. I sent him to proclaim and tell you the words that I would have you hear. Jesus made that Clear statement in the book of John when he says, For I have given them the words that you gave. This again is out of the high priestly prayer. I have given them, meaning the disciples, the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Peter, when Jesus says, Are you going to leave me? In John 6, he says, Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. And so the prudent person, the wise and discerning person, and again, this is not rocket science. If indeed Jesus is the Son of God, and God sent him with his word to share with us, and Jesus told those words to the apostles, and the apostles with the Holy Spirit bringing to their remembrance all that Jesus told them, write them down, and we have those words in this book, then the even a not-too-bright person is going to listen to the words of Jesus. And yet, if you go around Christendom today, you're going to hear a lot of words being thrown out there, but they're not the words of Jesus. In fact, a lot of them are directly opposed, opposite of the word of Jesus. Jesus says, deny yourself. Well, I say, indulge yourself. Jesus says that, uh, that there, the marriage is between one man and one woman and divorce is something God hates. Well, we tell you that we love divorce and that marriage is whatever you, defi- you define it to be. In other words, I'm going to take my words and I'm going to, to, to place them forward and I'm either going to manipulate or corrupt or replace the very words of God. But God came down on this mountain on this day to tell us if you are wise... You will listen to the words of my son. So brothers and sisters, when Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that you must be perfect, therefore, as my Father in heaven is perfect, listen to him. Listen to him because what he has done is he has just given you the standard. You will never, ever set foot in the kingdom of God unless you are perfect. And you will never be perfect on your own And so therefore, you need a savior. When Jesus says that whoever sins is a slave to sin, completely bound and controlled by that sin, then listen to him because what he is telling you is that you need a redeemer. You need a deliverer. You need a savior, and I am that savior. When Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, listen to him It doesn't mean that there are many ways up the mountain. It doesn't mean that Christianity needs to put equal credence on other belief systems. It means that there is one way and only one way to heaven. And that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to him when he says that. When Jesus says you must be born again. Or you will never ever see the kingdom of God. For goodness sakes would you listen to him? Because he is the one who was sent for our salvation. When Jesus says that those who reject me will face the wrath of God. Listen to him. Because he's the one who says whoever believes in me is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. When Jesus says as we just learned deny yourself if you would come after me. Deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow after me. Don't listen to the people who say indulge yourself. Don't listen to those who said Jesus came so that you can be wealthy and and rich and healthy and have everything that you want. Jesus did not come for your benefit alone. Jesus came for the glory of his father so that he could bring his bride To heaven and present it to his father. When he tells you things like this. Please listen to him. When he tells you that he is the vine and you are the branches. And that you can do nothing outside of him. Listen to him. We are not on our own. We don't lead him. We cannot bear fruit when we are separated from the vine. So Jesus is our all in all and all that we do comes through him. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am there, you may be also. Brothers and sisters, believe him. Be encouraged by him. Trust in his promises. The words that Jesus spoke are filled with promises. When Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious in this world, but trust in your heavenly father who loves you and does good things, even though it doesn't seem like it. Believe in him, because that is the truth. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this will be added up to you, believe him, listen to him, because that is indeed the secret of life. But finally, when Jesus says, stay awake, because you know neither the day nor the hour when I will return. And that's one of the reasons that it's really important that we see Jesus in the way that he is revealed here. Because Jesus will not return as Jesus meek and mild. He will not return as the humble son of a carpenter from one of the lowliest villages on earth. He will not come and be mocked and scoffed at. He will come in power and in glory. Mark says that, We will then see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and great glory. And Matthew says that as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And suddenly, just as suddenly as this refulgent Shekinah shone on him, that is the coming of Christ. And those who are prepared for that coming will rejoice. And those who are not will Pray that the mountains could fall upon them and hide them from the awesome, refulgent Shekinah of Christ. And you know, I could go on and on with this. I mean, literally, the whole Gospels are filled with statements of Jesus that we simply disregard today. So I, I leave you just with the plea that you'll pay attention to what God says. And you'll pay attention to the vision that we have of Jesus. And that when he says there's no other way into my presence, there's no other way for righteousness except that you give your heart and your soul, you surrender and you submit to Jesus Christ, that you will do so and you will do so right now because you do not know whether he will come again or you will go to him. So I leave you with this statement that we studied just over. Was it last week or the week before? When Jesus says in the 26th verse, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and the glory of the holy angels. Consider this question. Are you ready to meet the refulgent Shekinah of the Christ of God. you Think about that. Let's pray. Lord, I know that words just don't cut it here. I know that. But your word, I think, strikes to our hearts in a way that human-oriented words or human-originated words just can't do. So I pray that as we've gone through the scripture references and we've gone through this text that you have written on the hearts of every single one who calls you Lord and Savior to recognize that we're not just worshiping a man who died 2,000 years ago, who gave us a great ethical system and is a wonderful teacher and showed us the way we're worshiping the very Son of God who right now reigns in glory and will come again in power and glory as we see him here. Lord, we give you the glory for that. We thank you for that. We pray that you will hold us true to his calling and to what we have seen in his word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.